0: In themselves, that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus God, I thank you, thank you, that I am not like other people, those thieves and rogues and adulterers, and even like the tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be, Thanks be God. to God. Amen. Amen. So we've been working our way through a sermon series on gratitude, and we were saying that gratitude is not just what we think it might be. It's not just feeling. It's not just a habit. It's um, not just a social obligation or something we feel we've got to do, like write thank you notes, but gratitude is this holistic person. And that in order to fully embody the gratitude of God, the grace of God, since they're from the same word, the root of grace and gratitude are the same, in order to fully embody that, we have to do it in this, movement from not just a personal gratitude, but a, a corporate gratitude. And so today we're moving into, and this was our, the, our little diagram that we've shown a couple of weeks, um, that you may fall in there somewhere. I actually heard a lot of you give me feedback about the, the, the one about feeling. Um, and so all of them are uploaded to our podcast now, so if you would like to listen back and catch up, um, you can do that. Um, But today we're moving to the idea of gratitude being something we experience together. And so as we talk about this movement from me to we, I'm going to do it in an unfolding of about five stories. And they're going to be woven together, and so stay with me. So I wonder if your experience at high school graduations has been similar to mine. I remember my own, but more particular, I remember um, going to my, my younger cousin's high school graduation. And so we filled the property of Salem High School, and I remember the crowds and the horrible parking. It's always the same. I feel like they are always horrible parking. And dozens and dozens of teenagers and graduation regalia and all the parents and the siblings and the grandparents and friends holding congratulatory signs and the flowers and there were orange and black balloons of this one because those were the colors of the school we all knew that that day ahead um, would be long because they always are long and you got to get ready for the 500 students names that are going to be read and you only really care about your name but you're, you're you're not paying attention during the rest of the names but they're just long and Laborious. And I remember noticing, as we waited for the graduation to begin, how, how diverse the crowd was. Um, much like my high school in Chesapeake, um, this student body of this school in Virginia Beach was about 40% white, 30% Hispanic, 20% black, and the rest was some kind of Pan-Asian, Native American, some biracial. But it was just this incredible tapestry of people and cultures. Um, I also knew the government statistics for the area, that 38% of students graduating that day would have been deemed economically disadvantaged. A large number of them, immigrants and first-generation Americans. As the graduation began, the principal gets up to the podium, like they always do, this is not unusual, and says to those in attendance that day, um, please, please, hold your applause and your cheers. For the end of the graduation, once we've read all the names, then we will give you one big moment of applause and cheers. Please do that so that everybody can hear their child's name read as they walk across the stage to receive their diploma. So finally, the band struck up the alma mater, which was the cue that the graduates are going to get in line to receive their diplomas. And the first graduate comes and walks onto the stage, Alma Alvarez, and an explosion of sound (laughs) resonated from the corner of the room, Hoots and whistles and applause and waved banners from what looks like about a 30-person section, and we were told that we maybe could only have two tickets per family, <laughs> and, it was, and it just continued, and one graduate after another graduate. It was as if the principal had never, ever said those words and made that request, and these families, the gratitude and the ruckus of praise just could not be contained, and I can feel you relating with me here. As I'm sure you can imagine, probably have witnessed yourself Not everyone in the room was so joyful as this was going on. For some, this expression of gratitude and this ruckus of praise and celebration was irritating for some of the room. They were breaking the rules. They were out of line. A a counter buzz starts cropping up amongst the crowd. It was the the buzz of, disdain and condemnation. People were angry that they had missed their child's name being read, and there was eye-rolling, and there was gesturing, and there was othering, I'm sure you can imagine. And it was uncomfortable. (coughs) And then my aunt leaned over to me and said, noticed, almost every group that cheers is an immigrant family. I bet their children are the first to graduate from an American school. For some, the, the very first to ever go so far in school. And they're noisy because they're just so grateful. And although there was no way to survey every family from where we were sitting, I think she was right, it appeared that she was right, and we, we were not just at a graduation. We were sitting in an arena of thanksgiving, an arena where some were thankful because their son or daughter did not surprisingly did did not surprisingly well right like some were thankful because they were the 20th person in their family to get a college a, a high school diploma, and some it was this it was just an anticipation of what was to come and and then for some in the room it was a arena where the fruit of family sacrifice and the and a reward of a new life and a place of safety and success and and fulfillment of a dream. And all of this, all these kinds of gratitude are all swimming in this room. And this room of people, instead of allowing their shared stories of gratitude to bubble up and run over into each other's, had failed at gratitude. Making gratitude this competition and each other the enemy in the room, um, the way i do it is, is better than the way you do it, only zooming in on their individual gra- gratitude for the individual person they were there to celebrate. I'm grateful for my kid and for her success, rather than for the multitude of goodness and stories filling that room that day. Gratitude is this social thing, and we had failed that day, even though I totally was annoyed with everybody else. Story number two. I remember my first year serving here at Kingstown, and we were only worshiping monthly at this point, and I was spending much more of my time over at Aldersgate. And on November 22nd, 2015, I was robed up, and I was serving as a liturgist for one of the services at Aldersgate, and it was a Sunday service where one of their pastors, Jason Michelli, um, was preaching a sermon from the pulpit on Thanksgiving. And this was not an uh, ordinary sermon. Jason, a 38-year-old man with young children, was preaching for the first time in nearly a year since being diagnosed with and treated for a rare, incurable form of cancer. And it had been controlled, as they, they named it, but the congregation knew he would have to do chemo every other month for the rest of his life. And he had returned to preach a sermon on Thanksgiving, and he thanked them and for feeding him, and for praying for him, and for helping him with his medical bills, and for not batting an eye when he puked in one of their cars, and, and, and for the way they almost seemed to fall over each other in competition to help him. That, that there were so many meals, he couldn't eat them all. Um, all of these individual expressions of gratitude, but then he said, throughout his cancer, I, I couldn't summon up any courage or hope on my own. Rather, strength and healing came from you all, the community. The greatest gift you offered me, I'll never forget this line, the greatest gift you offered me was being with me. It was kind of, it was so kind of you to make my cancer, our cancer, yours too. Gratitude is this social thing. It's, it's being with one another in life together. It is the thread of nature and neighbor and seemingly fragile strands of gifts and goodness weaved into our lives together. And then we get to story number three. This story is the one we read in Luke's Gospel today. Two religious men. Um, the, the story of, of two men, it seems to just run so counter to this sense of communal gratitude or mutual acknowledgement or witness, This story seems to be of competing gratitudes, much like that that graduation ceremony. And here's the thing, I've, I've been to a lot of churches. This is the good news. I've been to a lot of churches, good ones and bad ones and ones all in between. And honestly, I have never seen the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector played out in real life like it's written here. In all my experience in church I have never seen some religious type figure with his like thumbs in his vest and his chest puffed out flexing his profile before God, giving thanks to God for, well, there might have, might, you might have, maybe you can picture somebody I, I have not seen this yet. Um, and then like Flexing his muscles and telling all the good things he does, and taking, and then, and then saying some disparaging words about the poor two to three other souls on the pew next to him. Um, I've never seen that before. I've, I've witnessed all kinds of bad things in churches, but I, I've never seen that. And this is not to say it. It seems like it seems to be like a caricature or a. Um, it, it's not to say that the that this story that Jesus told was not drawn from church life as he knew it, but only that after 20 centuries of painting this picture, this feels like a cartoon to me. And yet, the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector is so true to everything I know about myself and community, and it doesn't have to be the church where it's played out. Every time I read it, it produces this new recognition and confession in me. In these two characters, I can only ask myself, where have I met these people before? They're they're like people whose faces you you can't quite place, but you know you know them. If we really take stock, we could say that most of our, our spiritual insights come from life outside of this worship space right here more through the living and the befriending and the relationships that flow out from here and the way we decide to take the mission out into the world. It may be that we know these characters from other places. Maybe that you know these characters from church. Um, Maybe you have experienced the same kind of situation in another context. Story number four. For example, a few months ago, I went to court. I suspect that you, like me, and millions of other people, at one time or another, have received a traffic ticket. No big deal. Not a big thing. Perhaps you were doing like 35 and a 25, or you skipped through a light as it changed from amber to red, or maybe rolled through a stop sign, or did an illegal U-turn, but because you thought you were innocent, you went to court. Or perhaps, like me, you knew you were guilty and thought they might bring the price down if you show up in a clergy collar. (laughs) (laughs) And so at traffic court, 8 a.m. on, you know, a good old Monday, wasn't it interesting for you as it was for me as you witnessed community around you, all the stories of others? Wasn't it fascinating to hear the various offendants plead their case before the judge. You heard stories of hit and runs and drag racing and all of which only confirmed your deep suspicion that you, unlike them, really did not belong in this room. Because next to these other offenders, your offense was nothing. And as you heard the judge lecture the guilty parties, and impose stiff penalties, you felt like you were standing right there beside the judge, kind (laughs) of wagging your finger, too, as a representative of the righteousness of civilized law. And then it was your turn, perhaps, and you approached the bench with a feeling that you've got some rapport with this judge, even though you've (laughs) never met him before. And you have this sense deep down that you and this judge probably share values (laughs) and how surprised you are when you hear the judge begin to lecture you too. On exceeding the speed limit and running red lights and you want to interrupt and say something like, wait a minute, your honor, can we rewind a bit to that person, that woman two minutes ago who like endangered a child coming out of a school bus, can we return to her? before you've had a chance to say anything, you're guilty. And you've discovered that in the eyes of the judge, you're no different from anyone else in that courtroom. And you're you're just as guilty as the next case in a just court. And now you find yourself with your head hung low in the lobby of D.C. District Court, no less disappointed than your fellow traffic violators, and finding yourself even a glimpse of mutual gratitude. that. Well, it wasn't as bad as the other guy. <laughs> and so how can this be? It's, beca- it's because the judge's standard is not your own character, nor the character of the other people in the room. The judge's standard is a hard, faceless, inflexible entity known as law, if it's a just judge. It's the law that makes our stomachs all feel queasy when those lights flash in our rear mirror though the way it's lived out once the cop comes up may be much different. It's the law when administered justly that makes going to court such a frightening experience for everyone. We all are wondering what's going to happen. It levels the playing field a little bit. Or if, like the character of the Pharisee in Jesus' story, you are merely unconscious of your true standing It is a a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the law. This is the, the theology that actually emerged out of the Reformation about God's law and the law of human beings. Despite all the benefits, the law conveys lex semper accusat. The law always accuses. The story that Jesus tells is in many respects about the law, but it's also about community and about togetherness, and about a sense of social gratitude and mutuality. It's a simple enough story. Two, quote, religious people come to God's house to say prayers, two people from completely different tribes, completely different backgrounds and life experiences. One is a theologian who certainly knows the law. He's the guy who grew up in church, and he knows his Bible. Probably grew up in Baptist church, let's be honest. He's our resident theologian. (laughs) He knows his Bible so well, he went out of his way in undergrad to take biblical studies classes because he thought he'd get an A, right? And the other is the tax collector, read like scum, who also knows the law, but in a completely different way. Of these two people, one only really knows the terror of failure before the law. And that's the tax collector who abstains from the usual postures of prayer and instead sits in the cathedral, it says, with his arms folded and beating his breast in despair. And the other character, the Pharisee, stands up before God and raises his voice and gives thanks to God for making him the sort of fellow that he is and reels off of his accomplishments with regards to the law like less than exuberant, unsurprised parents at a high school graduation. Now, the Christian religion and our language in the church have been really unkind to Pharisees. The word Pharisee has become a dirty word. Actually, in 1902, the British House of Commons even banned the use of the word Pharisee in terms, along with the word hypocrite and jackass and rat. (laughs) But note, the Pharisee and this story does not come off badly because he's a Pharisee. Many of, the Jew, Jesus, many of Jesus' friends were Pharisees. Jesus ate at Pharisees' homes. Um, the Pharisees were, were who informed him of Herod. Those who entertained him in their homes were Pharisees. Nor does this character come off badly because he is, he's done the law. The law is good. The law is a holy thing. It, it, was, it was meant to be done, the law. No, what he has done is merely to rely on his own individual performance of the law rather than on the God who gathers people from all backgrounds and viewpoints under that law, all of us together. If we don't understand the basic distinction about the Pharisee, this little story is just an anti-Semitic story, the kind of story that Christians have loved to tell in the expense of those who honor God's law throughout time so the two men finish their prayers and each goes down to his house justified that is accepted and acquitted feeling pretty darn good about themselves the difference being that one is justified by himself and one has been justified by God by the time Jesus finishes this story has become something else entirely. This story has become a window into this whole other realm. Some will tell you a parable is like a blueprint for how you ought to live for successful living, don't believe it. Instead, I would say parables are like peepholes into whole other ways of thinking, whole other realms, a realm that Jesus brought to earth and called a kingdom. It's called the rule of God, except this rule of God is not in some by and by afterlife or some fabled kingdom. This rule of God exists wherever God's authority is recognized and obeyed and celebrated together. It runs like an electric current through people and groups and institutions like baseball and institutions like the church and in ceremonies and festivities like high school graduations, but it can never be equated with the institution. Even the church. This thing just flows out everywhere. What's more, because this kingdom is is God's rule on earth, it has authority and is demanding to be seen, it wants to break into our hearts and our lives and into our consciousness every day of our existence. Hence the urgency of Jesus' proclamation. In this realm, the, the first or last... And the last are first. In this realm, the mighty are cast down from their thrones, and the poor have good news preached to them. In this realm, the indifferent rich are said that they may find their place in hell, and the outsiders and the beggars whose bodies are covered in sores find a place to belong at the table. In this realm, those who are puffed up with their own righteousness and religiosity are deflated, and those who are really down are picked up by the hands of God. And this realm has this alien view of justice, at least alien from our own view. For in it, the law of external performance and individual performance and individual faith and individual gratitude for my blessings has given way to grace. And this grace levels the playing field And grace, believe me, grace produces some surprising verdicts. When grace is in the mix, the verdicts are much different than our own. To a a down-and-out tax collector, to scum, it says, You are accepted. There is a place at this table for you. To the prodigal child who has wasted his father's um, and mother's inheritance and has turned back on home and family and values, God's grace says, You can go home and guess what? Your home may be at this table with me here in our common table. To a woman (coughs) taken in the act of adultery, following a string of unfulfilled relationships and surrounded by self-righteous men with rocks in their hands, Grace says, neither do I condemn you. Come and take a seat at this table. Now go and sin no more. Unless you yourself have experienced grace, you may be outraged at some of the verdicts it produces. Because grace and law level the playing field. You may even feel like saying, in moments like at court, You call that justice? I mean, a crime has been committed. He murdered, he blasphemed, he stole. He won't shut up so I can hear my son's name read. He wasted my father's money. He endangered a child getting off a bus. He was caught in the very act. And the law, the conscience, the society never stop accusing and demanding their due. But the mystery of the divine courtroom is that God, with regards to God's own son, is very unjust. Story number five. The Apostle Paul puts it, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On earth, Jesus never got a a fair hearing in court. In Pilate's court, they lied, and in those proceedings, an innocent man was convicted. We have a law, the officials said, "and, and by our law, he ought to die. But in this courtroom where, we're, in this cosmic courtroom where one would have expected a fair shake for Jesus even, there too he, he's found guilty and, and made to hang on a tree. And this is also problematic when we think of this God. God made Jesus to, to be sin who knew no sin. And in that experience, Jesus becomes much more than a simple teller of tales and a spinner of parables. Much more than the one who who we, who we bless when we're, when we 're at a graduation, much more than the one who gives us our daily blessing, much more than the one we thank for the controlledness of a cancer, much more than that, the good and man, innocent man is convicted and executed. the dead criminal is exalted as son of God, and in this process he becomes brother to all people who have ever been crushed by their own guilt or by the evil of others. So if you're broken, or you're hurting, or you're depressed, or you're guilty, or you're afraid, or you're anywhere in between, or you know well the goodness of God and have a story to tell in that, this story, this grace, this gratitude is one of Mutuality and community, it's, a, it's this social thing. This is why the parable is entitled two religious men. The Pharisee and the tax collector would have have been from so many different circles, but they had one thing in common and they came to this, this shared table together, this common table. They both went to church, that's what they had in common. They both were in need of prayer. You find them both seeking justification of some kind. We realize that we, like them, find a need, all of us, to come to God's house. We have a need to offer our prayers together, prayers of gratitude and prayers that beat our chests for the mercy of God. And God knows we are seeking, every one of us, seeking justification of some sort in our lives, trying to make sense of it all. And so the question remains then, what kind of religious person will we be? If they're both religious, if that's what brings them together to the same church, to the same prayer, to the same justification, what kind of religious person will we be then? Because this kind of grace this kind of gratitude is something we find together and that makes room for each other would you pray with me God I told five stories today one of a, a of a graduation one of a celebration of someone con- in remission one God your story, your parable, your lesson for us. One of a courtroom, and one of Jesus. And we are all here today with our own stories. Our own stories of how we have been at a particular place out for our own good, at a sporting event or at a graduation or at a court, out for our own good, only only ever thinking about what we have to be grateful for or what we hope will happen or whatever justice we think we deserve. And we ask God that you would begin to open our eyes to those around us, that prayer is paying attention. Prayer is paying attention to the community of folks that gather with us, and that brings us into the reality of how leveling your grace is, how leveling your law is, but how leveling your grace is, that an out of that grace overflows gratitude that is not in competition, but we can all hold up our poster boards. We can all cheer. We can all recognize the goodness. God, thank you for that goodness. Thank you for Jesus who who knew no sin but became sin. It, It doesn't make sense, but even Jesus understood the leveling. Jesus took on the leveling of your grace. And so we pray that prayer together that you taught around common table, around a place like this table, a place like our tables in homes throughout the week where there's always another seat open and where we are all on level playing field and we all can tell our stories we pray that prayer that levels us our Father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses